Lord, we do pray that you would show us more of Christ, show us the danger of sin. Help us today, Lord, to flee temptation. Lord, the subject matter of the message today is so important, so sensitive, so difficult. That I, I pray for special grace, Lord, that we would not just hear this message well, but we would live it well. That you would give us a will to turn from lust and to turn to Christ and walk in a holy, righteous life before you. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. In April of 2003, a man by the name of Aaron Ralston went hiking deep into the mountains, the Rocky Mountains of Colorado. He was by himself. He hadn't told anybody where he was going. And on this hike, he was climbing down a narrow canyon and an 800-pound boulder was dislodged and pinned his right arm against the rock wall. And he couldn't move. He was trapped. Nobody knew where he was. Nobody knew where to go looking for him. Of course, at first he shouted for help, but there wasn't anybody within miles of this man. He was in a secluded place in the Rocky Mountains. And he was pinned against that rock wall for the next five and a half days. He got little to no sleep. His food and water ran out very quickly. And so he resigned himself eventually that he was going to die. And there was nothing he could do about it. Until he remembered that in his pocket was a small little knife. And so he decided that if he was going to live, he was going to have to cut off his arm. So he took this knife and he began sawing through through what well, was up above the elbow, sawing through his arm. He cut through the skin, the tendons, the bone, and he came to the nerve. And he said the nerve, was you can't believe how sensitive and tender, and it was like he was on fire whenever he would just touch it. But he sliced through the nerve, cut through the bone, threw away his arm, and he was free. And he said he felt such a sense of elation and joy when he was released and could get free of that boulder. And then, believe it or not, he made a, a makeshift tourniquet so he wouldn't bleed to death. He repelled 600 feet down the side of this mountain, hiked out until he found a living human breathing person who called 911, and they airlifted him to a hospital where they put him in stable condition, and he survived. And it was made into a major motion picture called, um, what was it, 127 Hours. It was nominated for Academy Awards. It's a true story. But it tells you the extreme drive that God has put in the human being to for self-preservation. We want to live, right? But within the child of God, God has also put another drive. And it's the drive not just to be freed from a boulder that's trapped you, but to be freed from the power of sin in your life. As the children of God with a new nature, we don't want to be trapped by sin. And this morning, I, I want to talk to you about the problem of lust, putting lust to death. In Matthew 18, verse 8, Jesus said, if your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than to have two hands or two feet and to be cast into the eternal fire. We need to have the same determination to free ourselves from sin that Aaron Ralston had to free himself from that boulder and live. We must be absolutely determined that sin will not have mastery over us. The Greek word for lust is epithumeo. You don't have to remember that, but all I want you to know is that Greek word simply means to strongly desire something. Now, it can mean to strongly desire something good, or it can mean to strongly desire something bad. Whenever it is talking about desiring something evil, it's translated as lust. But that Greek word also can mean to desire something good. In 1 Timothy 3.1, it's used of potential elders. If any man aspires the office of an overseer, it's a good work he 
epithumeo, he desires, he lusts to do. Even Jesus Christ himself in Luke twenty two fifteen said, I earnestly desire to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. It's the word for lust, epithumeo. I earnestly lust to eat this Passover with you. Now, we're not going to be talking about strongly desiring good things this morning. We're going to be talking about strongly desiring evil things, because that's really what lust is all about. Now, we have been saying over and over in this series that unbelief is turning from God to find satisfaction in something else. I hope that rings a bell with you, because I've been saying it over and over. <laughs> um, pride is turning from God to find satisfaction in self. Impatience is turning from God to find satisfaction in your own interrupted plans. Laziness is to turn from God to find satisfaction in ease. Gluttony is to turn from God to find satisfaction in food. And lust is to turn from God to find satisfaction in sex. So let's try to define lust even more. Lust is a desire for something that we think is good, but which is outside of what God has revealed is good. So it appears good to us, but God says it is evil. And so what will we do? Will we choose our will and go with what we think is good? Or will we choose God's will and go with what He says is good? So lust is really to put your own will above God's will. It begins when we see someone or some image of someone as beautiful or desirable. It starts there. And if it stopped there, there's no sin. It's not a sin to notice that someone is good-looking or beautiful or handsome or whatever. But if we go further and begin to crave that person for ourselves and imagine what it would be like to have that person and experience them in a sexual way, we've entered into the area of lust and we have sinned against God. Now, the problem with lust is that it breaks out in so many other sins in our life, right? Lust breaks out into pornography, fornication, adultery, incest, homosexuality, prostitution, bestiality. You know, the, it just goes on and on and on in these various sins. And so I don't need to preach to you a, a sermon on every one of those sins, putting fornication to death, putting pornography to death. This is the only sermon I really need to preach because if you really apply this one, all those other sins will be put to death. It's like lust is the root of the tree. And if I can poison those roots and kill those roots, all of the branches and all the fruit are going to die as well. All those other sins are just branches on the tree. Now, let me just say to you, and you already know this, killing lust is not going to be easy. It's going to be extremely difficult. And the reason is because we live in the most visual age that the world has ever known. Imagine living in the 1700s. There are no sensual billboards, right? There's no TV. There's no sensual commercials. Everyone knows that sex sells, and so commercials are filled with it. Uh, there are no Playboy and Penthouse magazines. There are no movies, Hollywood movies to watch, filled with steamy sex scenes. There are no computers. There are no computer monitors. There is no internet. So can you imagine living in the 1700s? About the only way you're going to be tempted to lust is if you actually see a living person that is desirable to you. But we don't live in that age. We live in an age that is incredibly difficult to keep ourselves pure, and we need to fight lust today more than any, any generation has ever had to fight it in the past. And so it's difficult, but it is not impossible. It is possible for the child of God to kill lust in his life. And I've said on more than one occasion, Technology is one of the greatest blessings of this generation, but it's also the one, of, one of the greatest curses because it's allowed a floodgate of iniquity to come in into the privacy of our own homes. It's made it easy. It's made it free. It's made it... It's just proliferated the evil. 
Now, don't get the impression from this message that I'm saying to you that sex is bad. Sex is not bad. It's God's gift. God created it. God thought it up. It's God's gift to humanity, but it must be enjoyed within the confines of God's parameters, which is marriage. One man, one woman, one lifetime. Within that parameter, sex is a beautiful gift from God. But if you try to indulge in sex outside of God's parameters, it's going to be destructive and sinful in your life. Now, this morning, I'm just going to ask three questions. Number one, how sweeping is lust? Number two, how serious is lust? Number three, how can we slay lust? That's where we're going. First of all, how sweeping is lust? By that, I mean how extensive is it? Well, I'm going to give you some statistics that I can hardly believe myself, but these, I, I believe, are true factual statistics. The porn industry in the United States brings in a profit of $15 billion a year. That is more than Major League Baseball, NFL, and the NBA combined. <laughs> okay, so we're talking about something that is huge in the United States and around the world. One out of eight websites are pornographic. One out of eight. Seventy percent of men 18 to 24 years old visit porn sites monthly. Yeah, 70%. Now, just think of that. 70% of men ages 18 to 24 are visiting porn sites. 2.5 billion emails per day are pornographic. <laughs> I said billion. <laughs> One-fourth, 25% of all searches are the, on the Internet are porn-related. The average age which a child first sees pornography online is 11 years old. The average age. 20% of men admit to watching porn online at work. One out of every five. And it's not just a problem out in the world, folks. This is a problem in the church. It's a problem within the church. Statistics are that about half, 50% of Christian men, and about 40%, if you can believe this, of Christian women are involved in pornography. They regularly visit porn sites of one kind or another, or they obtain pornographic material. And can you guess what day of the week is the most popular day to view pornography? Sunday. After church. It's not just a problem for men either. I thought, well, this is no problem for women. But did you know one-third of all the people that visit porn sites are women? 33%? It's a problem for women as well. And not only that, it's an epidemic. There's an epidemic of moral failure among Christian leaders and pastors. They've done surveys and asked pastors where they didn't have to give their names just to be candid and honest about their own lives. 54% of pastors sought out pornography in the last year. And 30, this is the most shocking, 30% had had an affair with a member of their congregation during their ministry in their lifetime. 30%. To me, this is shocking and it's scary. I'm scared for myself and I'm scared for you. We live in an age where we have to be deadly serious about this particular area of our life or we're going to be destroyed. It's going to kill us. So that's how sweeping it is. It's everywhere. It's free. It's in the privacy of your home. You can have any image you want on your phone, your tablet, your computer. You don't even have to get in your car and drive down to the corner drugstore anymore and risk being seen by somebody I mean, it, that's where it's at today. Secondly, how serious is it? Well, we need to think about the seriousness of lust in two categories. First, temporal consequences, and then eternal consequences. First, temporary. In other words, what are the consequences to lust during this lifetime? Well, it brings devastation and wreckage to people's lives. If you indulge lust in your life, it's only a matter of time until you're going to be caught, you're going to be found out, it's going to be discovered. If you persist in lust, 
and it moves into the areas of sexual sin, you will bring shame to yourself, to your spouse, to your family, and to your church. It tears families apart, right? We know this. It ends in divorce. The children are split. And some go with mother, some go with father. You have these visiting rights by the two parents. It brings disgrace to the name of Jesus Christ. You lose credibility with all those people you've been trying to witness to and all those people you're trying to disciple. They no longer believe you. If you are a Christian leader or a pastor, you can lose your ministry. Maybe not just temporary, maybe forever. You can get sexually transmitted diseases. Do I need to keep going on and on? Do you see that just the temporal consequences are devastating? But let's look at the eternal consequences. In 1 Peter 2.11, Peter talks about the fleshly lusts which wage war against your soul. Now, I want you to think about that phrase. Your fleshly lusts are waging war. Now, when two armies are waging war, what is their objective? Destroy. Destroy the enemy. Do you your fleshly lusts, if you allow them to, will destroy your soul? They will destroy you. You have to go after your lust like you would your worst enemy that's trying to kill you. You ought not fondle your lust, toy with your lust, compromise with your lust, make provision for your lust. You have to go after it and kill it. That's how the Bible describes dealing with this particular subject. It's like a cancer. When someone first gets cancer, they may not even know it. They may not even feel any different. They may look the same on the outside, but slowly and gradually they feel the effects of the cancer working its way on the inside, right? They start to get weaker and weaker until the point where their strength is completely gone and the cancer takes their life. And that's what lust does if we indulge in it. It causes you to be weaker and weaker spiritually. You have less and less of the vitality of God and to the point where you are just destroyed spiritually. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 27 to 30, Jesus said, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Now what is Jesus saying there? It seems very clear from the outset to me. He's saying, if you do not tear out right eyes or cut off right arms, you will end up in hell. The context here is lust. Verse 27 is speaking about looking at a woman to lust for her has committed adultery already in his heart. And then he goes on to say, if your right eye, which is what you lust with, causes you to stumble, tear it out and throw it away. Now we know he's talking figuratively and metaphorically, but at the least we can say, if you and I do not fight our lusts, we will end up in hell. I don't care if you've made a profession of Christ or not. I don't care if you said the sinner's prayer. I don't care if you've walked an aisle. Jesus is talking to his disciples here. And Jesus says, you will be in hell unless you deal radically and severely with lust in your life. That's how serious this issue is. I, I can't overstate this. Look at Ephesians chapter 5. And I know some of the thoughts that are going around in your mind. We'll get to that in just a minute. But let's establish this. This is a biblical truth that people who practice lust and sexual sin will end up in hell. No questions about it. Ephesians 5, 3 to 6. 
He says, but immorality. Now, let me just stop there. The word immorality means sexual immorality. It's the Greek word porneia. We get our word pornography from it. It's the word for any sexual sin. It can be bestiality, incest, rape, prostitution, adultery, fornication. Take your pick. Any sexual sin is included in that word immorality. He says, but immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. And there must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know with certainty, that no immoral, and it's the same word there, pernea, no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, what? What's the rest of the sentence? The wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Because of what things? Well, immorality, impurity, an immoral life, an impure life, that person has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God, and instead the wrath of God is going to come upon him. That's, I mean, it's plain as day, right? How can we miss that in our, in our Bibles? So I don't want anyone here to think that you can go on living a lustful life, committing sexual sin, and live in that kind of lifestyle and end up in heaven. And I know preachers will tell you that you can. Because they'll say, well, once saved, always saved. If you said the sinner's prayer, you're good. First of all, where in the world is the sinner's prayer in the Bible? Right? I've never found it. Secondly, true justifying faith is proven by a life of holiness. And here's the question I think that you're probably thinking. So, Brian, are you saying I can lose my salvation if I indulge in lust? No. I'm saying you were never saved. You were not a Christian. And you're proving it. If you go on living, practicing lust and sexual sin. And on the final day, when you stand before God, He's not going to let you in because you said, well, Lord, I said the sinner's prayer. I walked down an aisle. He said, I wasn't asking you to do that. I was asking you to repent of all your sins and follow my son. And you prove that you didn't do it. You didn't have true faith in me. No, you can't lose your salvation. There, there are two kinds of texts in the Bible. We've read a bunch of texts that talk about people ending up in hell who practice sin. That's true. But there's also a bunch of texts over here that say that the true believer can never lose his salvation. For example, Romans 8, verse 30. It says, Those whom he has called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. If you've been justified, you're going to be glorified. No doubt about it. We also find in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, lest any man should boast. Folks, I'm not telling you that you need to work in order to obtain salvation. Nothing of the kind. I'm telling you that if God has saved you, then you have a kind of faith that will result in a life of holiness. And if it doesn't result in a life of holiness, you don't have justifying faith. The kind of faith that justifies also sanctifies. The faith that delivers from hell will also deliver you from lust. Faith never produces perfection in this life, but it does produce a persevering fight against sin your whole life. Lust is never going to disappear completely from your life. You're going to have to fight it until you die, until your last breath. But its power over you can be subdued by the power of God. Romans 6.14 says, For sin shall not be master over you. Why? Because you're not under law, you're under grace. So if a person is under grace, sin shall not be master over that person. The power of enslaving sin is broken. Now if he goes on to live in sin, that's his fault. 
It's not that God hasn't provided a way of escape for him. He certainly has. So if we give ourselves to lust, it can destroy and ruin our present life and then send us to a place of eternal punishment forever. So do you see how serious the issue is this morning that we're talking about? It's that serious. Okay. Now, having said that, we know how sweeping it is. We know how serious it is. How do we slay it? How do we kill it? How do we have victory over this area of our life? And I'm going to divide this one into two categories. First of all, avoiding the temptation to lust in the first place. And then, overcoming lust when we're actually tempted with it. Sometimes you won't be able to avoid the temptation. So first of all, how do you just avoid the temptation? That, that's half the battle right there. If you can avoid most of the temptation in your life, you're gonna, it's going to go a long way to keeping you living a pure life before God. Well, 2 Timothy 2.22, Paul says to Timothy, flee youthful lusts. In 1 Corinthians 6.18, Paul says, flee immorality. And that word again is porneia, sexual immorality. Flee. That means run. <laughs> run away from it. Get as far away from it as you can. Avoid it. So how do we do that? How do we avoid these temptations towards lust? Well, let's just think of a few categories. First of all, TV. There's going to be all kinds of temptation for you to lust if you watch TV. So my advice is don't, don't own a TV. Get rid of it. Now, I know most of you aren't going to do that. You're not going to take my advice. I haven't watched TV in I don't know how many years, mm -hmm. several years, and I'm just as happy as I, I am now as I was before. I haven't lost anything satisfying in my life. You, 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 can, you can live and you can be a happy person without a TV. And you might be way better off spiritually if it's sucking you in to lust and wasting all your time. So that's just my first thing. But if you insist on having one, what do you do? Well, you're going to have to be very selective about the stations you watch, the shows you watch, and even the commercials you allow yourself to visit. If you start browsing on those 500 cable stations from one to the next, you're going to find yourself watching something that's going to fill you with lust. So, you're going to have to be super careful. What about movies? Movies are worse than TV. You're going to have to check the rating. If you're going to watch a movie, check the rating, find out what it's rated. Um, in our home, as our kids were growing up and we're watching a film from now and again, we would just decide, okay, we're not going to watch R-rated movies. We're not going to watch PG-13 movies. Maybe a PG, but we're going to check out the reviews and see what's the content is, you're just going to have to set standards for yourself or else you're going to be exposed to nudity. You're going to be exposed to steamy, seductive men or women that are going to cause you to be captivated by them and desire them. So I would encourage you, if you're going to watch a movie, read the reviews on it from a Christian perspective. And you can find these um, on the Internet now. There's free reviews of practically every movie out there. If you are a heavy movie watcher, I would say curb your appetite and become a, an occasional movie watcher. I don't think it's good for your soul. I don't think watching tons of TV or wa watching tons of movie is good for your soul. It deadens your soul to the glory of Christ. What's good for your soul is time spent with Him in worship, in prayer, in the Word, in fellowship, and if you're spending three or four hours a day in front of a television set, it's going to deaden your sensitivity to Christ and His glory. So watch it occasionally if you're going to watch it. Be careful of the things you watch. Well, let's move into Internet use, because this is probably the worst area that we get enslaved. It used to be that if someone was going to view pornography, like I said before, they have to get into their car, drive down someplace, actually pick up the magazine and pay for it at the store, drive away, and then view it. Folks, those days are gone. <laughs> you don't have to do anything anymore. You just turn on your computer and look at the monitor. And um, it's there. And if you're really careful, maybe nobody will find out. 
except for God, who's watching. And we'll bring all these things out on Judgment Day. And we'll be judged by the things we did in the body, whether good or bad. God is seeing. God is not mocked. But we think, well, if I can get away with nobody else watching it, then I guess that's okay. No, it's not. This is why so many people are enslaved to pornography today. Because it's so accessible, so easy, free, and they think they won't ever get caught. And so people are enslaved. That's why 50% of men in the church view pornography regularly. So what can we do about it? Is there anything we can do about this? Well, yes, there is. If you know you're having a problem with this, download one of those, uh, those filters that filter out pornographic images and uh, have your wife set the password so that you can't go in and change it. And then you're set. You don't have to worry about it from then on, from, from that point on. Now, of course, that doesn't mean there's not going to be any sexually suggested material that they're going to allow through the filter. But at least the worst of it will not come up on your, your computer monitor. So I would say at the very least, you can do that. In addition, you can avoid sites that you know are going to tempt you to lust. Even if there's no, no nudity, if there's seduction, if there's sensual material, you want to avoid that. So if you know that if you click on this, there's likely going to be a sidebar with all of this stuff that's going to be there that you can click on so easily, just don't go to that first site in, in the first place. If you know that if you go here, there's going to be probably pop-up ads that are going to be seductive, don't just... If, if you've already found out where the danger points are, avoid them. Just make a decision ahead of time. I'm not going to those sites anymore because I know it's not good for me. It's like quicksand. I know if I step in this place, I'm going down. So I'm not going to step there. I've already tried that. It's already bummed me out. It's already devastated me. I'm not going there. I'm going to avoid these traps, these minefields, so that I can walk before the Lord with a clear conscience. I would also suggest to you to, that you find someone that you can talk about this, an accountability partner. Most men don't have anybody that they can talk to. The hard questions, you know, like how much time are you spending with your kids? How are you doing in your relationship with your wife, really? Are you having a regular date night? And then have you watched any sexually explicit material in, since we talked last hard questions like that that we need to be asking each other if you don't have anybody if you just kind of live a private secret life you're setting yourself up for failure um pastor jerome and i meet weekly and sometimes we'll ask each other these kinds of questions and it's a little hard the first time we did it but i'm glad we did we we established that as something that's okay we're, we've given each other permission to ask hard questions so that we don't fall. We, neither one of us wants to fall. And I don't want you to fall. And so if, you have, if this is a problem in your life, you need to find somebody that can help you, that can meet with you. And I would suggest not another compromiser, but someone who is actually having victory in this area and who will really keep you accountable, who's going to speak into your life. And then I would also say this, do not spend time alone with a man or a woman that you are not married to. You might think, well, it's just an innocent business lunch. We have to go over this, this program we're working on, this project, so why don't we just get together and have lunch and talk about it? I, I don't think it's a good idea. Or you're working late. You're at the office, and the only two people left are you and this one other woman. I would avoid that. I don't think it's healthy for you to put yourself in those kinds of positions. I have made a decision a long time ago. I will never meet to counsel a woman alone. If I'm going to counsel a woman, my wife's going to be there, or I won't do it. I'll just say, Debbie, could you counsel her? I'm not going to do it. If 30% of pastors fall into an affair with someone in their congregation. I don't want to be part of the 30%. And if you start meeting privately with someone who's not your spouse, attractions can develop. 
Emotion, first of all, it may start off just as an emotional attraction, but it, it can easily go too far unless we're so careful, church. I mean, we all know the horror stories of people that we know that have fell into adulterous affairs. Christian people, people that say they love Christ, but they've fallen in this area. And we just need to be so careful. So that's what we can do to try to avoid temptation. But let's say you can't avoid it. You're driving down the road and you see a billboard. Okay. Or you're watching something on TV and up comes this commercial. Or you're watching the Super Bowl and there's the halftime. Forget halftimes, guys. We <laughs> Don't even watch the halftimes because you know you're not going to survive it. <laughs> I mean, what do you do when you actually are tempted by either someone in person who's desirable and beautiful to you or an image that you're seeing that's coming into your consciousness? Well, here's, here's some ideas for you. Number one, turn over to 1 Timothy 5 and I want to show you Paul's admonition to Timothy. Okay, 1 Timothy 5, verse 1. Do not sharply rebuke an older man, but rather appeal to him as a father, to the younger men as brothers, the older women as mothers, and the younger women as sisters, catch this, in all purity. Timothy, when you relate to younger women, relate to them as you would your own sister in all purity. That's how you need to deal with younger women, Timothy. As a sister. Now, if there is someone in your life, a real live person that you're attracted to, that you find desirable, that is not the will of God for you, Train yourself to think about that person as being your sister. And you're never going to lust after your own blood sister, right? Train yourself to view that person, oh, this is a sister. Because that will be helpful to have the right relationship to people of the opposite sex that is not God's will for you to engage with. And then I want to spend the most of the time on this next point. So this is dealing with temptation when it comes up. Exercise faith in the promises of God. Feed your appetite for God. When you're filled with the Spirit and you're walking close to God, lust is small and God is big. But when you're not walking close to God and you're not filled with the Spirit, lust becomes big and God becomes small. And that's when you are headed for a downfall. So you need to be filled with the Spirit. You need to be close to God in your fellowship with Him. You need to be feeding on His Word daily. You need to have intimacy with Christ. Those things are going to fortify you. Um, in, in the couple centuries past, a Scottish minister by the name of Thomas Chalmers wrote a very famous sermon called The Expulsive power of a new affection. And I think that's a great title, but I would change it just in one word. The expulsive power of a superior affection. In order for lust to break its stranglehold on us, we need to desire something more than we do that person or that image. Something else must be better in our estimation than that. There must be something that holds out a greater promise than the promise of that lust. And if we feed ourselves on the superiority of these promises, the power of lust will lose its power, its stranglehold on us. Now, what do I mean? Let me try to explain this. Lust gains its power in us by persuading me and you that we'll be happier if we follow it. Right? That's how lust works. It tells you you will be satisfied if you follow this path towards this lust. You will be fulfilled and satisfied and happy if you, if you chase after this. So in moments when we're tempted, we need the Holy Spirit and especially His sword, which is the Word of God, to cut through the fog of Satan's lies 
In Ephesians 4.22, it talks about the lusts of deceit. Did you know that the lusts that you experience, those are deceitful, they're lying to you? They're telling you that it's going to make you happy, more fulfilled, more satisfied if you just follow that, and it's lying. Satan is lying through those lusts. So you need the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, because it will cut through all of that fog, and it'll show you where true and lasting happiness is found versus these lusts over here. Lust only tells you what Satan wants you to hear. The Word helps us to stop trusting the promises of lust for happiness, and it directs our attention to the promises of God for happiness. So you have to believe her that God is really better than sex. God's better. The promises of God are better than the promises of sex. The enjoyment of God is better than the enjoyment of sex. You have to believe that, because that's what the Word of God tells us. So you have to be a person of faith. It all comes down to faith. Overcoming lust. It comes down to faith in Christ and His promises. If you believe there's more happiness in God than there is in lust, the power of sin is broken. See, I won't yield to the offer of weak, old, leftover tuna casserole if I know that I can have fresh-baked lasagna. Right? I know lasagna is better than tuna casserole that's a week old. So I'm not going to yield to the offer of lust if I'm already experiencing a superior pleasure in God. Do you follow me? Lust tricks us into thinking that we're going to miss out on some great satisfaction if we follow the path of purity in our lives. But it's lying to you. We have to pick up the sword of the Spirit and begin to fight. We have to go to the Scripture and we have to see, what does the Scripture tell us God promises to us if we follow His path? And so let's look at a few Scriptures. And this is just a quick sampling. I'm going to give you four of them. Romans 8, verse 6 is our first one. For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the Spirit is life and peace. Okay, men and women, if you set your mind on the flesh, what are you going to get? Death. But if you set your mind on the Spirit, what does, that, what does the Word promise you? Life and peace. Now, what one would you rather have, death or life and peace? If you really believe the Word of God, you want life and peace. And so you want to set your mind on the Spirit. Let's look at another one. In Jesus' parable of the sower in Luke chapter 8, in verse 14, he says, The seed which fell among the thorns, these are the ones who have heard, and as they go on their way, they're choked with worries and riches and pleasures of this life and bring no fruit to maturity. So the person who gives himself to the pleasures of this life, and the lusts of the flesh are certainly included in those pleasures, he brings no fruit to maturity, no fruit in his life. So do you want to have a life where there's no fruit? Or do you want to have a life abounding in spiritual fruit for God? If you want to have a, a life filled with fruit, you can't give yourself to the pleasures of this life. Sexual sin, lust, you just can't do it. You won't bear fruit. Okay, another one. Psalm 84.11. And I'm just going to quote this. No good thing will God withhold from those who walk uprightly. You think you're going to miss out if you walk an upright life? You're going to miss out on all of these other women you could have had and slept with and all the stuff you could have seen, all the movies you could have watched. Man, I'm missing out on so much. The Bible says the exact opposite. No good thing does God withhold from those who walk uprightly. If you want to have a devastated life, go ahead and live that way. If you want to have a, a life blessed with all of God's good things, walk this path. Because He's not going to withhold any good thing to you if you walk uprightly. Matthew 5, 8. In fact, I'm, going to, I'm just going to read that to you. Matthew 5, verse 8. These are the Beatitudes. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. 
The Word of God promises us that we're going to see God if we're pure in heart. So here's just a quick sampling. What does the Scripture promise us? It promises life and peace, a life of fruitfulness, no good thing being withheld, and seeing God. But it's just the opposite if we pursue and indulge our lusts. So as we pray for faith to be satisfied with God's promises instead of the promises of lust, the Spirit removes the candy coating from the poison of lust. Lust looks so good until you've bitten into it and feel the effects of the poison. It looks so good, but as you're meditating on the Word of God and you're praying that God will help you to be satisfied in Christ, it's like the Holy Spirit just cuts off that top layer of sugar and candy coating and all there is left is poison and you can see it for what it is. So we need to ask God to show us the reality behind these things that our flesh craves that are destructive to us in our lives. Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 6.12, fight the good fight of faith. That's a command. The command is yours and mine. We are commanded to fight the good fight of what? Faith. It comes down to faith. Do we really believe this book and the promises God has made to us? If we really believe it, sin will lose its power because this is better than anything else Satan can throw at you. It's better. It's more pleasurable. It's more enjoyable. It gives you a better life, a life of happiness and fruitfulness and joy and life and peace. But it comes down to faith. We have to fight the good fight of faith. And just God's warnings and God's threats of judgment will never be enough to set you free from lust. You can know that if you live a life of lust, you'll go to hell and still go on committing that lust. You need a superior promise, a superior satisfaction. You need to fight with massive promises of superior happiness in God. It comes down to that. So we need to be people of the book. How else can we know the glorious promises of God unless we're in this book every day? That's got to be part of our lives. We need to be finding satisfaction in rolling our burdens on the Lord in prayer, worshiping Him, people that are committed to communion with our God. I'm going to close our message this morning by asking you to turn with me to 2 Peter 1. Okay, let's go over there. And let's take a look at verses 3 and 4. 2 Peter 1, verses 3 and 4. Now, I'll start in verse 2, because that's where the sentence starts. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and excellence. For by these... He has granted to us His precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by what? Lust. The corruption that is in the world comes through lust. Well, how do we overcome the corruption that is in the world that comes through lust? He says when God calls a person, what he does is give them a revelation of his own glory and excellence. If you've never seen the glory and excellence of God, you've never been called. Because that's what happens when you're called by God. You see it. You see the glory of Christ. You see his beauty and majesty. You, and you savor it. You love it. You, you relish it. It's part, you, God gives you spiritual taste buds to taste the deliciousness of the gospel and of Christ. So that's what happens in conversion. And by that revelation of God's glory and excellence, He grants to us promises. And notice how He, how he def describes these promises. Precious and magnificent. <laughs> if something's precious, it, it's worth a lot, Right? It's like gold or silver or precious stones. The promises of God are worth a lot. 
They're precious, and they're also magnificent. Now, Satan tries to tell us that if we pursue lust, we're going to have precious experiences, magnificent understandings. But what the Scripture says is God's promises will deliver, and the, the lust never can. It never can. So lust will never lead you to fulfillment and satisfaction and meaning. It will lead instead to deception, bondage, devastation, and destruction. And in the end, you will find yourself in hell. So here's my word to you. If you want to escape hell, prove that you have justifying faith by fighting lust. Fight it. Fight it with all that you have, all your might. Or it will fight you, and you don't want to be conquered by this one. Over in 1 John, it says, Who is the one who overcomes the world? The one who is born of God overcomes the world. And what is it that overcomes the world? It's our faith. So put your faith in the promises of God as better than the promises of lust, and God will give you deliverance from it. Lord, we come to you knowing our frailty and weakness, knowing the, the magnitude of the enemy, knowing the dangerous world that we live in that's filled with minefields, landmines, quicksand on every point, and somehow we've got to navigate our way through that and get to heaven. And Lord, we pray for your grace that we would apply the word of God. Help us, Lord. Help us, Lord, to find superior satisfaction in you and what you've promised than what our flesh lusts after. Give us victory, O God. Help us to seek out people that we can talk to honestly about these things. May we not be the statistics, the 50% who view pornography or the 30% of pastors who fall into immorality. Lord, may we not be those statistics. Help us, O God. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.